preaching a message this morning I've entitled Children of the Day. And we'll discover as we get through the text and through the message just what that title is in reference to. It's actually pulled right from the text itself. itself. Now, if you are a guest with us today, um, you need to know that we are smack dab in the middle of a section of First Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul is answering some questions of this young, fledgling, yet maturing church in northern Greece regarding the return of Jesus Christ and ushering in the end of the age. And so as he is answering those questions, we are gaining with them insights into that very true eventuality of Christ's return. And here's what we need to know as we embark on the message today. History is going somewhere. History has a destination. History has an ending point. Just like this whole thing called human history, we believe, based according to the Word of God, had a definitive beginning, we also believe the same God that spoke into existence that definitive beginning will bring about a definitive ending. This is the God we serve. This is the God who rules heaven and earth, the God of the universe. And so what we'll discover is our understanding of God being the Lord of the beginning will directly influence our understanding of him being the Lord of the end. As we understand God was uniquely involved in the beginning of all things coming together, it will also conclude in our minds how he is ending it all. So for us to address this issue of the end of the age is to realize that the convictions that the Christian carries about these things, they are opposite what the world sees. You see, the world's understanding of the origin of the universe, the world's understanding of the origin of human history is just random chance that we're all just molecules just haphazardly bumping into each other. There's no reason, there's no order, there's no purpose behind it. And for those who hold to that view of the origin of life, if they let that settle into their souls, friend, you can't help but go to very dark places emotionally. Why? Because there's no purpose. There's no meaning to all of this. There's no reason for the things that happen. That worldview cannot bring about any type of hope. And that's exactly what we're talking about in this series is living with hope. And what happens is when you let that understanding of origin settle into your mind, you all of a sudden become very materialistic. I don't mean just materialistic in the sense of wanting to acquire the most possessions. As Malcolm Forbes said, the one with the most toys at the end wins. How tragic of a view. But materialistic in the sense of the material is all that matters. The physical is all that matters. There is meaning precisely because history is going somewhere. There is purpose for our lives precisely because God has established a destination point. Both the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament hold this truth up. You you see, the Jewish mind of the Old Testament understood perfectly that the creator God is in charge of history. Not only did he start it, did he originate it, but friend, he is governing every nuance of human history. 
And because of that, he will also bring it to a conclusion. He started it, he oversees its day-to-day operation, and he will bring it to its final destination. Further, it is understood with this worldview that because God is in charge of human history, that each and every one of us will stand before that God and give an account for the history we've been given. We will stand before this God. I will stand before this God and give an accounting for every word I've spoken, every action I've done, and every thought I've thunk. This is the reality of the biblical description of life. And this may be exactly why the secular mind refuses this concept because he knows, the secularist, what he's done. He knows the vicious words he's spoken. He knows the perverse thoughts that have crossed his mind. And the last thing he wants to do is give an account for those things before his creator. And again, because this is the biblical worldview, that we each have ultimate accountability for God, it is not difficult to understand why this is rejected by many today. Even those who have this so-called spiritual mind today. You've heard this before. I'm not religious, I'm just a very spiritual person. Many times what people mean when they say that is they view life almost through this Eastern religious mindset or grid where they see things in history as cyclical. And we're simply on this circle right now, but we're going to rotate out of this circle to another circle and then to another circle. You may have heard it called karma, not true. It just circles around and we just try to move up the next circle. I'm a very spiritual person. The biblical description of history is not cyclical, it's linear. It has a starting point and it has an ending point. And it is this issue of the ultimate destination and final conclusion of human history that is brought to the forefront of our thinking as we study this section in 1 Thessalonians as we consider this. Now, if you're a student of history, high school student, college student, if you are a, just an adult who enjoys history, you need to keep this grid in front of your thinking. God is the God of history. Nothing happens by accident. He is sovereignly overseeing and guiding it just as he has intended. And here's what this helps us do. It helps us to interpret the headlines of the day. When we see the troubling headlines that come across our screen, we can know God is the God of the universe. And we can interpret those things and that he is sustaining it and it is accomplishing all he determines to accomplish. So let's look at our focal text this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. The Bible says this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, 
having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain, obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of the day. Believer in Christ, you are a child of the light. <laughs> and this helps us interpret what we do in our understanding of life, that we can actually live with purpose and with meaning, with an eternal perspective. Now, as Paul concluded the last chapter, chapter 4, there were really four things that he emphasized about this coming end of it all. First of all, he talked about the return of the king. Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom. He talked about the resurrection of the dead, that those who are dead in Christ will be resurrected from the dead. He talked about the rapture of the living, that we who are alive and remain at the return of the Lord will be caught up together with them in the air. And that leads right to the fourth thing. There will be a reunion, not only with them, but with Jesus forever and always. And I have no doubt, just like with us for these Thessalonians, these realities and these truths that Paul was communicating obviously led to some questions in their heart and their mind. Questions related to, okay, Paul, in the words of Nacho Libre, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Let's get down to the really brass tacks. What's really going to happen? Paul, we want to know about times and dates. We want to know about these instances and these nuances and these uh, minutia. Well, then Paul really points out from this passage several things. The first thing is this. Number one, there are the trivialities we avoid. There are trivialities related to the coming of Jesus, the return of Christ, that as children of the light, we simply say, we're going to avoid those trivialities. We're not going to get bogged down in those minutiae. There are those we know who get their calendars out. I've had people tell me, when I study the Bible, I have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. Why? Because they're looking for these minutiae and these trivialities that try to put together some type of calendar and some type of timeline. Paul answers this tendency and says, listen, you don't need an accurate chronology. What you need is a biblical theology. If I looked at this next slide, this may help you remember it. A preoccupation with chronology, absent from biblical theology, will conclude in erroneous mythology. The more you focus on the times and the dates and when this is going to happen and how does this historical event line up with what the Bible says. I remember the late great planet Earth, they interpreted the locusts as being helicopters from Russia. I mean, it's all these things. This is what this refers to. A preoccupation with this trivialities, this chronology, absent from biblical theology, will conclude in erroneous mythology. Unfortunately, those who have spent the bulk of their time looking at what's known as biblical prophecy over the last 150 to 200 years have done just this. They've concluded with erroneous mythology. Let me give you a couple of examples. Back in the early 1840s, there was a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller. William Miller, uh, from his in-depth study of the scriptures and also looking at the times and the events of history, put together basically from Daniel chapter 8, this conclusion. Jesus is coming back October 22nd, 1844. Now, those who followed William Miller and his uh, really 
teaching were known as Millerites. Millerites. And this was not a small following. He had upwards of 50,000 devoted followers. So, October 22nd, 1844 is coming. What happens? Tens of thousands of Millerites went to Massachusetts. They put on these linen white garments known as ascension robes. They got up on top of rooftops and climbed up in trees so their journey would be a little shorter, waiting for Jesus to come back. October 23rd, they're still in their white robes. October 22nd is known to the Millerites as the Great Disappointment. In fact, there was one 17-year-old young lady by the name of Ellen who was one of these Millerites. Two years later, she would marry a fellow by the name of James White, and together they would start a movement known as the Seventh-day Adventists, which were made up of predominantly Millerites. You move forward in history, in more recent history, in 1988, I remember reading about this or seeing this uh, right after high school. This book was very popular among evangelicals called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Of course, 1989 came, and we were still here. So he wrote a follow-up book, 89 Reasons Why 1989. It didn't happen in 1988, so that's my 89th reason. I'm only kidding. There wasn't a follow-up book. Some of y'all remember 10 years ago, uh, Harold Camping put these billboards across the country. I saw them around here. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. In fact, it has a little stamp of guarantee. The Bible guarantees it. It didn't happen, Right? Whenever you have a preoccupation with chronology, absent from a biblical theology, it will conclude in erroneous mythology. And this has been the case throughout modern evangelical history. Now, Paul affirms that the real issue is not about knowing the times and dates. It's not about knowing these trivialities and curiosity. Here's the real issue. You might want to write this down. It's about staying alert staying alert. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why not? Why don't we need to talk about times and seasons? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What's the point? Stay alert. (laughs) Stay alert. Nobody knows the date. Nobody knows the time, no matter how much time they put together and putting together their chronologies and their charts and their graphs. I've even read some where they take the the measurements of Noah's Ark or the physical measurements of the temple have given in the Scripture. People apply a chronological value to them, and they come up with these dates. It's ridiculous. He said, don't get bogged down in trivialities. And let me reinforce this truth that no one will know the date by giving a couple quotes from Jesus himself. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He said, therefore, you also must be ready, alert, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In Mark chapter 13, he said this, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. No one's going to figure it out with their charts and graphs. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the Thessalonians say, let's get down to the needy-greedy. We want to know about times and dates. And so he says, forget times and dates. Forget seasons. Forget these trivialities. But these Thessalonians, they weren't the first to be concerned with dates and seasons and hours. In fact, when Jesus, after he was resurrected from the dead, he made all of his resurrection appearances for the next 40 days until finally he is with his closest followers in Jerusalem 
and they ask one question before he ascends. We just want to know one thing. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed, here's the destination point, by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Here's the problem. If we have a preoccupation with these trivialities, it keeps us from the main task. What's the main task? Evangelizing the world. What's the main task? Taking the gospel and being Christ's witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit to the end of the earth. Now, back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses two illustrations to communicate and describe for us the these aspects of Christ's return, these two realities about the coming of Jesus, they will help us avoid the trivialities. The first one is this. The timing of Jesus' return is secret. The timing of Jesus' return is secret. The first illustration Paul uses to communicate this reality is the illustration of a thief coming to rob you in the middle of the night. Notice what he says again, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I need to remind you that this instruction here in chapter 5 is a continuation from the end of chapter 4, where Paul says, I'm giving this to you as a word from the Lord. And I told you, I believe this word from the Lord is literally the teaching from Jesus' mouth. And the reason I think that is because Jesus said this before Paul said it. Jesus said, when I return, it's going to be like a thief in the night. In fact, the Apostle Peter in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, he uses this same illustration. When Christ returns, it's going to be like a thief in the night. What's the point? Well, when a thief comes, he doesn't tell you he's coming, right? You don't get a postcard in the mail one day. Dear homeowner, I just want you to know, on May 3rd, I will be arriving to ransack your home at 2 a.m. Just thought you'd want to be aware. No, a thief doesn't do that. If you've ever been burglarized, you know it's a secret. Shortly after Amy and I were married, we were burglarized. We get home from church one day, and my stereo speakers were missing. We eventually discovered who the culprits were, found these two teenagers, presented them to the police, and they did nothing. But at any rate, they didn't tell us they were coming. They didn't knock on the door and say, hey, when you guys are gone at church tonight, we're going to rob you blind. No, they don't. It's a secret, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. But even though the apostle says the timing is a secret, even though Jesus says the timing of his return is a secret, even though Peter says the timing of his return is a secret, there have been all kinds of people throughout church history that have tried to be these prophecy experts to tell us, oh, he's coming here. No, he says it's a secret. You don't know the time. That's the first illustration he gives, but here's the second illustration. The event of Jesus' return is sudden. First, he uses the illustration of a thief in the middle of the night. Now he's going to use an illustration of a pregnant woman with labor pains. Notice what he says again in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I can remember with my wife's pregnancies this phenomenon of labor pains. You ladies remember that at all? So with our first child, Aubrey, 28 years ago, Amy determined she was going to have an all-natural delivery. In other words, not have an epidural to deaden her lower extremities. I'm just going to go all-natural. But halfway through the delivery, she changed her mind. (laughs) Now, the problem was she worked on the labor and delivery floor. So all the nurses caring for her were her 
not only colleagues, but her friends. And they were all saying, oh, you can do it, Amy, you can do it. <laughs> right? So she didn't get an epidural, but they gave her what's called Demerol, which is uh, quite a narcotic. So here's what happened. It knocked her out, right? She's out cold, boom, until about every two and a half, three minutes. And I'm there right with her in the delivery room waiting for the delivery, and I'm just watching Amy's face, and she's out cold. And as soon as her eyes went wide open, I knew, hey, here comes another contraction. I, this is before the meter even started ticking over here. I knew she was about to have a contraction. And I looked at her right in the eye for those 60 seconds or so. We were eye to eye, and then she, she's out cold again. On one particular time she woke up, I had my shoulder-mounted VHS camera zoomed in on her face, and she opened her eyes, and she goes, get that thing out of here! <laughs> right? She knows I was going to tell you this story. She was supposed to be working the nursery day. I don't know why you're in here. Um, <laughs> FYI, the next three pregnancies, she had an epidural. But she went all natural with Aubrey. Now, I want us to consider the juxtaposition that Paul puts here with this thief coming in secret and the suddenness of labor pains. Labor pains are fully expected to come. We know they're coming. She's pregnant. We just don't know when. The timing is a secret. This is the trivialities that he's trying to get us to avoid by just understanding. His coming is secret, but when it comes, it will be sudden. At least the second thing to consider. Number two, the identity we affirm. Again, for the believer of Jesus, we fully expect, as a pregnant woman fully expects, there will be these labor pains that suddenly come at a secret time. But then Paul introduces a contrast for us to let us know about our identity. Look again at verse 4 and 5. He says, For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Friends, when the Lord descends, there will be a cry of command. There will be the voice of the archangel, and there will be the trumpet of God. It's going to whack out the world. What is happening? But we are children of the day. We're children of the light. So when those labor pains come, it won't come and surprise us. Yeah, we'll be shocked. Oh, it's here. But it won't be a surprise because we know that God is accomplishing the purposes for which he intended to accomplish. This transformation of understanding, Paul connects it to our identity. Don't miss this. Paul connects our understanding of these things to our identity as children of the day, children of the light. We belong to the light. This transformation of our identity is all through the Bible, um, through the New Testament particularly. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, notice what Peter writes to those exiles. He said, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But we are not like the rest of mankind in that we're walking in darkness. No, we have been given the light of his word, the light of truth, and the light of his Holy Spirit. Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, this aspect of our identity as children of the light, he said, for God who said in the beginning, this is where history started, Way back then, let light shine out of darkness. This same God has shown in our hearts, 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when the world around us is just walking around in this purposeless, meaningless life, we can have purpose. Why? Because we're children of the day. We're children of the light. The same God that created the universe created new life in us. And we recognize, we recognize that unlike the children of the dark, there are no ultimate human solution to human problems. Oh, human, humanity tries. We make our best efforts. We see the issues and the social justice problems and the inequity issues and the, the things going up and down and left and right, and humanity tries to correct. But often what we find is the solution is worse than the problem was. As I said in the introduction of this message today, we can be confident about how it's all going to end because we're confident about how it all began. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts and he will close the book of human history just as assuredly as he opened the book back then. And friends, when we understand our identity as children of the day, when we understand our identity as children of the light, it informs and it empowers how we live our lives. So if you were to ask me, Troy, I'd like you to write a Shakespearean play, a play with all of the plot development of William Shakespeare, with the nuance of these characters, I would say, I can't do it. Further, if you were to come to me and say, Troy, I'd like you to paint a mural after Vincent van Gogh's style. Oh, you could hand me some paint and a brush, but it would be a catastrophe. But if somehow, mysteri mysteriously, William Shakespeare or Vincent van Gogh could come live inside of me and control me and operate me, I could write a Shakespearean play. I could paint a Van Gogh masterpiece. Friends, Christ is living inside us. Jesus resides within us through his spirit. And unfortunately, what happens a lot of times, even in the church, is we degenerate down into what's called externalism or moralism. Oh, you're a Christian? Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Try harder, be better, be kind, be nice, close your mouth. That's all externalism. Here's the gospel. The light has shone into our hearts. We have the very presence of his spirit. And we allow the work of Jesus to work through us and in us. It's not try, try, try. It's Christ flowing by his power through us. Resurrection power. And that really leads right into this third and final thing I want us to see from this passage, not only the trivialities we are to avoid and the identity we are to affirm, but number three, the strategy we adopt. What is the strategy we adopt as living out this identity as children of the light? As we live it out in front of a dark world, people who are in darkness. Well, the strategy that flows from this is just in a nutshell, we know and we believe Jesus is coming back again. We know and we believe he will come to judge the quick and the dead. His coming is at a secret time, but his coming will be sudden. 
I'll show you two things from this passage that bear that out in just a moment. But before, I want us to consider a parallel passage from the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 with regard to how we live our lives, the strategy we adopt as children of light. Look at Ephesians 5, beginning of verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, thought, word, deed, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, becoming a child of the light, becoming a child of God, necessarily changes the way we live. Our identity provides the very basis from which we function and from which we live our lives and how we interpret our behavior. I've told you before, belief impacts behavior. The way we live is based on what we believe. And again, this idea is repeated in verses 6 through 8 of our focal text. Look at verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. What's Paul saying? As children of the light, you live in the light. There are some things that are done in the dark that you don't do at daytime. He mentions a couple. We don't sleep in the day. Now, if you've got a night shift, you might sleep in the day, but generally speaking, you don't sleep in the day. Most people don't get drunk in the day. You're sober. And he's saying very simply, our understanding of our identity as children of the light impacts our behavior, impacts the way we live. He says, wake up. Function as those who are awake. You see, here's the thing. If you uh, do things when you're asleep, when you should be awake, it creates a very dangerous situation. Let me say that again. If you function in the sleep and do things as you would when you're awake, it creates a very dangerous situation. I found this out really the hard way two weeks before Amy and I were married. Young loves, right? We wanted to spend every waking moment with each other. So I worked on a farm. I got up early, 6 a.m., worked all day, physical labor on a farm. But as soon as I was done working, what did I want to do? I wanted to be right beside Amy. And so sure enough, we're beside each other every night until midnight every night. Well, this lifestyle eventually caught up with me until two weeks before our wedding day. I'm riding home from her house, the 20-minute drive to my home, and I'm falling asleep at the wheel big time. Y'all been there and done that, right? I'm falling asleep at the wheel. And so I'm trying to do everything to keep myself awake. I turn the AC on high, point the vents in my face. You know, I got the music cranked up real loud. I'm slapping myself, pinching myself. But I don't know how many times in that commute, that 20 minutes, I kept veering off the road, and it was the rumbling of the shoulder that woke me back up, right? Oh, get back on the road. So finally, one mile from my house, I fell asleep at the wheel, almost home, and when I was awakened by the rumbling of the shoulder, there was a mailbox right in front of my car. So I did what any 21-year-old would do. I turned hard to miss my neighbor's mailbox, and when I did that, it caused me to flip over the road and roll and face in the opposite direction. The only thing that happened was the arm of my glasses were turned. I didn't even have a seatbelt on. What a knucklehead. Two weeks before we married. 
could have died. Doing something in your sleep that is only reserved for being awake is a dangerous situation. So Paul says here, be sober. Be sober-minded. You're children of the day. That means you have a particular strategy with regard to how you live your life. And really two things I'd point out as we close together today. The first thing is we defend the truth, and I would add these three words, to our souls. We defend the truth to our souls. Look at how verse 8 continues. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, watch this, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. The only thing I can conjecture from this is why did Paul bring up the armor of a Roman soldier at this point? Is Well, he's talking about being alert. He's talking about standing at the ready, and perhaps his mind just went by the Spirit's inspiration to a soldier standing at the ready, on the alert. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul gives instruction on the whole armor of God, but Ephesians was written sometime later than 1 Thessalonians. So this is really the first time Paul's used the metaphor of Roman military implements to describe the Christian life. And he uses two implements, and they're both defensive. Defensive. The breastplate, which protects the, in, the inner details of your body, your chest region, and also a helmet, which protects your head, which protects your brain. The breastplate, your vital organs, namely your heart, and the head. For the breastplate, he describes that protection forming from faith and love. We protect our heart with faith and love. Isn't that amazing? This is how we defend our souls for the truth, through faith and love. See, faith is believing the gospel. Faith is depending on the work of Jesus. Then having believed, how are we to live our lives out? Love. <laughs> love for God and response and a love for neighbor, love for one another. And then he describes the helmet, this protection, as the hope of salvation, the hope, the confidence, the assurance we have of salvation. Think about this triad, faith, hope, and love. Have we heard those three before somewhere? Sure, they're in 1 Corinthians 13, most famously, but even in here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentioned it in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3, verse 6, faith, hope, and love. You see, this helmet of biblical hope, when our head is hit, from the things in this world, it doesn't daze us. We keep our wits about us because even though all things around us may be going to hell in a handbasket, we know the hope of salvation is that Christ is returning and he will end history just as he has determined. So there's this defense of truth to our own souls through this weaponry of faith, love, and hope. But then here's the the last thing, we depend on the truth for our salvation. We depend on the truth for our salvation. As we move forward with great anticipation for the return of Jesus Christ, knowing his hour of coming is secret, but knowing it will come suddenly, we do so depending on the truth of our salvation. Notice again what the text says. God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the truth we must depend upon. And what do we depend upon? We're not destined for wrath. 
God, listen, is a God of wrath. Sometimes when we think of attributes that are given to God in the scriptures, we often attribute to God the same nuances of those character traits like we see in humans. God's wrath is unlike human wrath. God's anger is not like human anger or fury. When someone is wrathful in our experience, they're out of control. It's a temper tantrum, children and adults, right? When, when God expresses his wrath, it's not an out-of-control temper tantrum. It is settled, it is measured, it is direct. You see, God, as a holy, righteous, pure God, must, absolutely must, punish sin. And so his wrath, his fury, his indignation against sin is necessary because of his pure, pure and holy nature. In fact, notice how the Bible puts it in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is God's settled reaction towards sin. In fact, look at this next slide here. God must punish sin, and here's the gospel in a nutshell. It was the wrath of God against my sin which made the cross of Jesus a necessity. But it's the love of God for me which made the cross of Jesus a reality. Think about that. My sin, if there was to be any salvation, the punishment of a holy son of God was a necessity. But what made it a reality? Here's what made it a reality. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What made the cross of Jesus a reality is what we quoted together a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The love of God made the cross of Jesus a reality for us so that even though we are under his wrath, we can experience salvation. In fact, Jesus communicated the same truth as he's talking to Nick, Nick at night, Nicodemus in chapter 3. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why? But the wrath of God remains on him. Friend, the wrath of God towards Troy Walliser and towards my willful disobedience against God was assuaged at the cross. That punishment I rightly and justly deserved, Christ took it in my place. So we can speak with truth of the gospel. We can rest in the gospel. We can defend the gospel in our souls and we can depend on the truth of the gospel in the world because Christ is coming again. Well, Paul concludes this section the same way he concluded the last section. With this, we'll close. Looking at it, verse 11. Therefore, therefore, encourage one another 
and build one another up just as you are doing. These truths delineated here in chapter 4 and chapter 5 about the return of Jesus, they're encouraging to us. The fact that Christ is coming back to bring the end point of human history, that's encouraging to us. The truth about our identity, that we're children of the light and we can live from that identity in the world, that is encouraging to us. The truth that, that all, all who walk by faith in Jesus have the wrath of God against them assuaged by a sacrifice of Jesus, is that encouraging? Encourage one another with these words. Friends, we don't cultivate joyful expectation, joyful assurance by speculating on all the world events as they happen on the calendar. We cultivate joyful assurance by reminding ourselves Jesus is coming and he's setting up in his kingdom once and for all. So, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. That leads to my last thought. The ultimate answers to our personal needs are discovered in the treasure trove of biblical truth. The treasure trove of biblical truth.